Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss emerging markets, which have bounced back strongly since the start of the pandemic. Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Rob Mansell, Senior Fund Manager, and Miles Sherry, Investment Consultant, talk about how these markets differ from developed markets and the right approach to include them in your investments. Hello, welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. I hope everyone's been able to get a bit of sun. I certainly feel very lucky that I managed to take a few days away from the home office, coinciding with a very short heat wave, because I gather, I gather we're due for freezing weather again. But anyway, a bit of a taster of, of hopefully a good summer ahead of us. The topic today we thought would be interesting for, for you guys is emerging markets. So it's probably a, a, an area that we don't talk about enough as an industry. And so what we thought is we would bring in Rob Mansell, who covers the asset class within our manager selection team and is our in-house expert and backed by popular demand, mainly my demand and your very popular Miles, is Miles, one of our investment consultants to add a bit of, of client insight and, and thought there. So before we get under the skin of emerging markets and, and the drivers, etc., I guess the first question is really, why invest in emerging markets at all? And, and maybe, Miles, you could kick us off here with with a bit of a uh, some thoughts, if you can, just around what kind of exposure to market participants typically look to take in emerging markets. You know, why why bother? It, it's it's an area that tends to need expertise, and hence we've brought Rob in to to share a bit of his know how. But I suspect clients ask you a lot. You know, is it worth it? Why have it in in your in your overall asset allocation? So, Miles, let us hear your words of wisdom. <laughs> yeah, not so not so sure about being backed by by popular demand, but but there we go. I think you could you can probably flip the question on its head actually, Nikki, and almost ask, you know, why wouldn't you want exposure to emerging markets? And I think, you know, some some of the hesitation we get from clients in that space is maybe down to the fact that, as you've said, it's it's not spoken about as much. And also probably down to the fact that many emerging companies, if you think about the names of them, are just simply less familiar to us. But thinking about emerging markets is a pretty loose term in reality, and there's no real set definition, but generally speaking. It essentially refers to countries which are seeing pretty rapid economic growth. So China, which has been growing or at least aiming to grow at around about 6% a year, that's, of course, a lot higher than more developed markets. So the likes of the US, which over recent years, on average, has been growing at around about 2% or so. Now, simplistically, a faster rate of economic growth should, of course, in turn lead to uh, higher corporate profits. And then that basically feeds back into stock prices and will JP and the wider asset allocation team do all sorts of very, very fancy complex modeling. I'm not ashamed to say it goes well above my head, but they do expect emerging markets to have the highest likely future returns of all our eight asset classes over over you know the next 10 years or so. Now that all sounds really quite attractive in rising markets, the return from the MSCI emerging markets index has at times been way above the returns from an index that simply tracks you know, developed stocks. So years like 2009 after the financial crash and also 2017 is, is another example of that. But there is a catch because that potential high return does come typically with much higher volatility or more simply risk. And what we mean by that is you tend to find 
emerging market stocks see more extreme price swings over time than their developed counterparts. So whilst returns can be double or triple as high, they can equally be double or triple as low. So it can work against you when markets have a bit of a wobble or you go through a recessionary period or see a shock such as a, a natural disaster in years like 2008 and more recently 2015 and 2018 are very good examples of that. So I guess the takeaway message here is you probably want some skin in the game and exposure to emerging companies, but it can be a bit of a roller coaster ride. So it's therefore about making sure the allocation is in line with your risk profile and investment objective. And that's the job the team spend hours looking at to make sure that mix of assets is correct. But that said, you know, even investors in our highest risk profiles and funds typically won't have more than, say, 20 to 25 percent exposure to emerging markets because as you've mentioned before nikki this is not a get rich quick scheme it's about having sensible exposure to the world's capital markets in line with the risk you want to take and, and miles just there you talked about sort of 20 to 25 percent exposure presumably you're talking about exposure to overall equities or are you talking about in a diversified portfolio of of say eight asset classes yeah, no, very, very good point. So diversified multi-asset class portfolio of, of those eight asset classes, as you say, a high risk client will typically have around about 20 to 25% exposure to emerging market stocks outright. Yeah, okay. And, you know, we've talked in, in recent podcasts around familiarity and, you know, that step into investing often being the important thing is to is to get invested and stay invested. And if that means sticking closer to what you know than than so be it even though that may not be optimal obviously there we we were saying about emerging markets maybe not being quite so uh, well known by by many investors especially those that are newer to investing so can you just give us a bit of color around how the asset class has evolved over time yeah, of course, because it's it's pretty staggering, uh, actually, because some people talk about the fact that the asset class has evolved, but that's almost maybe a little bit of an understatement in reality, because the sheer rate of change has been staggering. So you'd be forgiven for thinking the index is still very heavy in commodities. After all, it wasn't actually that long ago, back in 1988, when the MSCI Emerging Market Index was actually formed, and it was dominated by material and you know financials, those sorts of names. The reality is that's changed a lot, and we can maybe touch on that a little bit later. But what's really interesting is to see the countries within the index. And a colleague, Alan Budenberg, wrote a very, very good piece on this, I thought, back in January. Because again, going back to when the index was formed, there are actually just 10 countries sitting within it, with the bulk of that exposure being to the likes of Brazil and also Malaysia. Now, believe it or not, there was pretty much zero exposure to parts of Asia. So countries like Taiwan, South Korea, and of course, China. But fast forward to the present day, China now accounts for about 40% of the index. That is incredible growth. And a lot of that is really down to parts of the Chinese market, like the domestic mainland A shares market, it's called, only actually becoming eligible for inclusion in the index in the last few years or so. On the flip side, you know, I referenced Malaysia earlier, that's gone from being around about 30% weight in the index to more like 5%. So there's some big, big changes. Wow, that's, I mean, it's incredible to hear that that rate of change. And I suppose, you know, not, I suppose not, not unsurprising in the sense of the higher growth characteristics of, of those economies. But ultimately, I guess, 
it's it's a very broad classification of of investments you know bucketing it all into emerging markets i mean you know ranging from brazil to parts of europe like like poland for example we just heard about china as well so rob just bring you in here if we if we could the latter is is clearly a very interesting area to focus on what's driven that rapid rise in the Chinese economy relative to, say, Latin America or other parts of the emerging markets? Yeah, so I would say, you know, at the at the broad economic level, you know, there have really been several factors at work here, as always, I guess, with this kind of thing. And political stability is probably one of those, you know, it's certainly been one major contributing factor in China's case relative to, you know, a lot of parts of emerging markets and uh, and probably developed markets, to be honest. I would say, you know, you could look look at this in a in a couple of periods, but probably the sharpest period of relative growth for China is really post the financial crisis in 2007 and 8. I mean, this was really, I guess, the end of what uh, many people would call the commodity super cycle, where the cost of many commodities had had increased exponentially, you know, over the, the sort of prior few years, and and much of that, you know, was actually driven by demand from China. The the Latin American economies that you mentioned. Specifically, I guess the likes of Brazil were really, really hit very hard by by what was a very sharp plunge in the price for for a lot of these commodities, and for which exports, you know, are really the the backbone of their economy. At the same time, in in response to the financial crisis in two thousand eight, China launched a, a huge infrastructure investment drive to to boost growth, and China was really able to make you know relative gains very, very rapidly as a result of this program. While some of the other emerging market economies were actually contracting at, at the time, you know, and and you know at the same time, you know, it was also able to make up a lot of ground on some of the the bigger developed market economies, you know, including the U.S. as their economies contracted as well. This program was focused around transport and transport hubs, and with massive amounts of building and construction work around this, the the scale of that development and the subsequent development actually is is mind boggling in statistics i mean there is the famous statistic about china using more cement in the years between 2011 and 13 than the us used in the entire 20th century which is i guess quite mind-boggling but you know that was really a period of america's great expansion you know they built most of their roads and skyscrapers during this time and and china managed to do that in two years it the equivalent statistic i read uh, actually earlier before coming on here was that's the equivalent of laying cement over the entire surface of Hawaii's big island. And more recently, the, the COVID-19 pandemic has has probably created another inflection point, actually, you know, with China, the only real major economy to have really expanded to any extent in 2020. It's recovered a lot faster and really seems to have been able to control the pandemic much better than than many other countries, probably probably our own, uh, along with that. Along with this, you know, the government has backed this up again with a new infrastructure package. But a lot of the money, a lot of the the package this time has been targeted at making China more globally competitive from a technology perspective. So really more focused on on maintaining this growth going forward. And I mean, talking about growth and where China's got to, I mean, would it be right to think of China as more frankly, a developed country? Is it, is it still really an emerging market? Uh, I know when you look at GDP, which, which is, you know, in effect, all the goods and services produced within a country, China's not far behind the US now. So, so what would it take for it to get to that sort of developed status? Yeah, 
uh, and Mars mentioned Allen's article, it actually sort of touches on this a little bit. I think in terms of the headline GDP number that you mentioned at the start of this century, so start of the 21st century, the China's GDP was about 12% of, of US GDP. And now you've got you know analysts really predicting that China is going to overtake the US sometime later this decade, which is you know an incredible sort of turnaround. At a high level, you know, th- this might sound like we as investors or the, the major index providers should really be ready to put China on on a parallel with the developed markets like the US and the UK. But but here it's probably important to make the distinction between nominal GDP or and GDP per capita, which which Alan's article touches on. I mean, you you quite rightly describe the GDP figure while. The GDP per capita is really that metric breaking down the country's economic output per person. So it's it's simply calculated by dividing the GDP number you mentioned of a country by its population. Now, clearly, in the latter, in this calculation, the size of a country's population matters a lot. And, and on that measure, I mean, China has a considerable population relative to the rest of the world, which which means on this measure, GDP per capita, it is lagging considerably behind the US and is, is certainly not forecast to catch up to the US any time in the immediate future. So that, that sort of per-person calculation matters a lot more when, when looking at the debate between developed or emerging. I guess the important thing to consider here when looking at any of the headline figures about China is simply China's massive size and scale. I mean, it talks about cement use, but, but just in terms of a few numbers, so everyone knows the population of China is, is significantly larger than most countries it's four times that of the us and more than 20 times that of the uk even you know within china you can get sort of huge dispersion of, of development and china has some of the most advanced cities in the world which you will see pictures you know of amazing buildings and technology that's a big heart of these cities but in china there are also several hundred cities with more than a million people living in them and if you compare that to less than 50 across the whole of europe cities with a million people living in them it gives you an idea of, sort of the, i guess the scale and diversity within china the the degree of development that has occurred in in some of those chinese cities you know can vary very dramatically to the to the ones that you might see on the on the news for example yeah some really interesting insight there rob and also a very important clarification on that on that gdp point but let's maybe take a look at what's been going on over the past year or so in relation to the pandemic, because you touched on this yourself, but Asia and, and China more specifically has performed really quite well over the past six months or so. I expect a lot of that is essentially due to the region in many ways being first in and first out of the pandemic so far. And Wuhan saw some very, very strict lockdown measures initially. And whilst it sounds pretty crazy, you only have to Google search Wuhan party to see the hardline approach seem to work because they seem to be having sort of massive parties back end of last summer. So what's been what's been driving that? I would say, you know, 12 months ago, you know, if you go back to, to the end of March last year, I think the, the first six months, China specifically, you know, outperformed a, a lot of markets within emerging markets. And, and certainly there was a lot of talk about, you know, being first out and first in, I guess, first in and first out. And and I already I, I touched upon I mentioned earlier that they've, they've dealt with I guess the coronavirus pandemic a lot a lot better than some other countries. The last six months have looked a bit different in terms of performance for certainly for China. I mean emerging market returns have been very very strong, but uh, when you look at sort of what's 
what driving that from a country perspective to your point it's been the other parts of asia that have really done a bit better and that's the likes of taiwan south korea and and actually india which has also recovered extremely well post sort of pandemic market drop so and china during during the last six months has actually lagged other markets in emerging markets so it hasn't actually been one of the top performers when you look into what's driving that from a sort of sector perspective uh, over the last six months materials it financials and industrials have, have really been the sort of main drivers and best performers within within the likes of materials it's been some of the suppliers the key key parts of the industrial economy that have been the real winners the things like steel manufacturers paper and pulp suppliers chemical manufacturers the china index or msci china index is more centered around the sort of big mega cap chinese internet retail and entertainment companies and these have have not really kept up with with these other sectors and i guess more of the reason for that is actually very very short term so the last six weeks in which we've seen the market actually sell off a little bit towards the end of of the first quarter this year there's been a very very sharp reversal in in some of the trends that you were talking about you know in terms of the the recovery story and the consumer discretionary sector which houses a lot of these mega cap chinese internet names has underperformed with the i guess what you could call the worst performers being some of the the lockdown winners so things like distance learning providers or or yeah the large internet retail and platforms you know they've really struggled a little bit and it's it's sectors like hotels restaurants leisure and and amazingly package holiday providers that that have actually been among the the best performers recently which means you know if you look over the the 12 months actually things are looking a little bit more balanced now despite these sectors still being largely closed or, or certainly operating under significant restrictions across across different countries in in both asia and emerging markets I think you know there, there certainly seems to have been a bit more focus recently on just just how beaten up the price of some of these businesses has got relative to what have been some of the more popular trades or popular popular areas of the market. Financials recently have really benefited, I think, from some of this this opening up talk. While while technology, which you can't get away from in in Asia and emerging markets, has has been one of the best performers both initially coming out of COVID and actually more recently, which which really illustrates, I guess, our increasing dependence and the the world's increasing dependence on some of these businesses in the technology sector. Yeah. And and Miles, coming to you, I mean, what trends uh, are you seeing um, more generally sort of beyond China and EM? Yeah, I think some of this probably goes back to what I was saying earlier in reality. So the massive changes in index composition with China now just dominating the index has in turn led to some pretty big changes in sector exposure as well. So go back to 1988, technology was roughly 5% of the index. It's now more like a quarter of the index. So some massive change there. And if you think about it, many companies, as I said earlier, are simply less well known. But if you're listening to this podcast on a smartphone, I'm sure you probably know the name of the company that produces it. But then think of all the different components that go into go into things like smartphones and, and TVs, so components like the chips that actually power the devices, many of those components are actually produced by companies that reside within Asia. And it's a really big market. And who knows, it may be set to, to grow further. Rob was also talking about the infrastructure packages and the spending we saw after the financial crisis. It was very much targeted on, on things like transport. That spending after the pandemic is still there, but it does seem to appear that China 
is uh, is focusing even more on spending on things like data centers, electric vehicles, 5G technology, that kind of thing, and very much seems to be trying to focus on on being an outright competitor in the markets relative to developed nations, rather than simply being part of the supply chain for products like smartphones. But I think what would be really interesting is to to understand from Rob, because he talks to many different third party managers on a on a daily basis, if any of those managers are seeing any particular parts of the market that that they're targeting or where maybe they're seeing opportunities ahead of us. Because many clients, when thinking about developed markets, have been talking about the the sector rotation that we've been talking about on this podcast over the past few weeks and also more money flowing into more cyclical companies. So those that are more sensitive to the economic cycle. So have you seen that playing out at all within emerging markets, Rob? It's always very difficult to sort of lump too many managers together as a group just because they certainly have a variety of different approaches and styles. Uh, in Asia and, and China more specifically, I would say those, those managers that, that we speak to with a longer term investment focus really or continue to really tilt their portfolios towards you know, some of the longer term growth themes that, that you touched on. I mean, this includes uh, things like you mentioned smartphones, but consumers looking to upgrade, you know, in terms of the brands and quality of goods that they consume. There's a lot of talk that uh, we, we hear the word premiumization used quite a lot by managers, but essentially to describe that process of consumers really really looking to scale up the quality of the goods that they consume. And and that might not just be smartphones. That could be simple things like, you know, the trainers or, or T-shirt that you wear. I would say technology and more specifically, again, you touched on it, the growing importance of some of these companies in in areas of the market that are key suppliers into the supply chain for, for some of the technology that we all rely on these days. It is definitely becoming a more popular trade idea for managers. So to your point, you know, this isn't necessarily guess, the big manufacturers. It also isn't necessarily the, the mega cap internet consumer retail and entertainment platforms in EM, but, but really some of the key components and parts of that supply chain that underpin the technology like hardware, equipment, and, and more specifically, our IT services. So you know, there are companies in these sort of sub-industries that, that are there to, to really make sure that the technology keeps going to produce all these things that we're all such big consumers of. Some of these businesses have, have existed for years off, off the radar of many investors in emerging markets, I think. And the managers that we, we invest with dedicate a lot of people and time doing the detailed analysis and research to, to really uncover and try to identify these kind of companies that are going to be the, the potential future winners. And I mean, Rob, you you reference there the focus in needing to identify those future winners. There's there's a lot of hard work and and resource that that is required for that, and and clearly, you know that tends to come at a cost. So, Miles, just thinking about you know you're talking to to clients and prospects all day, every day, typically. What what do you find is is the is the typical uh, sort of view on this, or, or where where do you tend to see concerns raised? Yeah, it, it, it almost always revolves around fees. And look, it, it's entirely understandable because let's face it, we'd all ideally like to pay less for for stuff, wouldn't we? So it's a it's a very fair challenge. But the reality is that the cost to invest in emerging markets is typically a fair bit higher than developed markets, regardless of whether you choose to invest in, say, a passive investment, so buying a fund that essentially looks to 
to simply replicate the index and track it, or if you opt to pay for an active manager, so in other words, paying a little bit more for a team to select stocks and try and beat a wider index. And there's all sorts of factors that feed into this, such as shares not trading as often, leading to higher brokerage costs. But focusing on the active management side, the higher costs are largely due to a lot of resource, which goes into researching emerging companies, as, as Rob alluded to earlier. So meeting with management teams, that kind of thing. And because the universe is so large, managers also tend to have analysts based on the ground in, in local countries too. And all of that, of course, comes at a cost. But the clients that I work with will no doubt be absolutely sick of hearing me bang on about the term value for money. But that, that really is, I think, the most important thing to consider because the reality is that most managers out there, uh, active managers, probably won't beat the benchmark over the long term. And it's really not an easy thing to do. But there are some that may. So one of the active funds on our approved list focuses particularly on, on Asia and that has outperformed the benchmark index net of the fund fee over the past eight calendar years. So I don't know about you, but I would call that very good value for money. And it's there's no guarantee that's going to continue. And it is, of course, one very specific example. But I do think it's an impressive feat, particularly when you consider that over those eight years or so, we've seen some very positive years for emerging stocks, but also some less positive years when the market has been down. So the takeaway message from me here is that there are many managers out there, but Rob and the wider manager selection team spend an awful lot of time trying to find what they think are the best ones that are not only performing consistently over time and sticking to their rigorous investment approach, but also taking a very diligent approach to risk. Now, to many investors, that won't be the most interesting part of investing, but the point I'd argue is that it's probably the most important part. Yeah, here, here. Very well said. And Miles and Rob, thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you to our listeners and subscribers. And we'll be back again next week and enjoy the long weekend if you are listening to us from the UK. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.